Well, I think that's a pretty dumb idea. Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, how do you sort through your ideas? Are they all good ones? I hope not. Well, I had somebody ask me about that, if all my ideas are good ones, because that's what they hear about. Well, we're going to talk about that. Got some great news, just in terms of news items, things that are happening around us. Some really fun things I want to share today. And then questions like, how do I get around the preconceived notion that someone must have three to five years experience for an entry-level job? Well, we'll work on that. And then um, got some questions. Had several questions about social media with all the options available for building my brand. How do I keep up with all the social media choices? And then somebody asked me, you know, Dan, I hear you share all about your good ideas. Do you ever have a bad idea? Well, we'll look at that. Hey, here's a quotation. Comes from John Maxwell about ideas. He says, ideas have a short shelf life. You must act on them before the expiration date. I like that. I mean, good idea. If you have a good idea and don't act on it, you know, the funny thing is, well, Brian Tracy, one of many experts, says that we have probably three or four ideas that would make us millionaires if we took action. But a lot of times we don't. We have an idea and we think, well, whatever, you know, somebody else probably is already doing that. And then what happens often, I find, is that somebody does come up with, you know, the next hula hoop or frisbee or whatever it happens to be or iPhone. And then somebody says, well, I thought about that three years ago. Well, why didn't you act on it? Why didn't you do something? The idea doesn't make you any money. The idea doesn't change anything. Taking action does. Well, We'll talk about some ideas, how to put legs on them. Here's our resource for today. If you go to 48days.com slash why, it's simply my basic message on understanding who you are, what opportunities out there for you. Who are you? Why are you here? Just go to 48days.com. Why? Free resource. We'd love to get that out to you. Well, here's some of the news items. This is one that made me kind of scratch my head. Eight of the 10 largest banking giants, including Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, now have their own podcast. Somehow, I had a hard time getting my head around that. Do I want to listen to a podcast from my bank? I don't know. I I can't imagine being interested. I may check it out, but it just surprised me even to see that statistic that eight out of the 10 largest banks now have their own podcast. What it does, it affirms that podcasting is a happening thing. Podcasting is where the action is. Big companies are moving away from TV and radio because those are changing dramatically. Podcasting is what people want. You can access it when you want it, where you want it, any way that you want to. You can be riding your lawnmower or on the treadmill as I usually am. Golly, you know, this morning I, well, listened to a great podcast this morning, as I usually do. Anyway, just interesting, the people that are getting into podcasting. Well, here's another item. Taco Bell is testing a $100,000 salary for general managers. 
Currently, managers at Taco Bell make between fifty and eighty thousand, but Taco Bell's parent company hopes that increasing compensation will help the company retain talent in a tight labor market. I'm going to think about that. I'll probably have lunch at Taco Bell today. It's a day where I don't have lunch scheduled. Usually on the day when I do my podcast, I don't schedule a lunch appointment. And oftentimes I'll pop into Taco Bell. I know the manager well of our local one here. Uh, She knows me and uh, I'll have addressed their hiring practices in the new version of 48 Days to the Work You Love. So I'm pretty familiar with what goes on there. But again, interesting to see that. Companies are realizing if they're going to keep good talent, they may have to pay more. Here's another news item. This new LED lamp has helped 90% of its dyslexic users, users to read effortlessly. Now think about dyslexia. I'm real familiar with this, having a son, Jared, who were very open about the fact that he's dyslexic, so he sees things backwards. Getting ready for the Super Bowl, Kelly reminds me once when he was a kid, probably 12 or 13 years old, he made a big sign for him. We were living in California at the time. He made a big sign, just a poster for our own home, about his preferred team for the Super Bowl. And his sign read, 40 Peers. 4PS instead of 49ers because he saw things backward. Well, this new lamp helps people like that because it changes the way that they see the light. It changes, you know, one of the, one of the things that they say, the cause of dyslexia is still a bit of a mystery. Researchers have found that the disorder may be caused by a person being born with two dominant eyes rather than one. I had never heard that before. That's pretty interesting. Two dominant eyes rather than one. So because both eyes are vying to process information, written letters and words can become blurred or backward, which makes reading and writing particularly difficult for people with dyslexia. So this new LED lamp is designed to pulse and modulate at customizable speeds that clear up the visual symptoms of dyslexia. Now, for Jared, when he was little, one day we came home and he had all the walls in his room covered with black paper. Well, you know, we could immediately think, God, he's getting into this goth stuff, you know. No, we thought, why has he done that? Well, we did a little bit of research and we realized that it was calming to him to have the dark colors. He would try to study his homework with very little light. And we used to always go and turn the lights on. Why do we? Well, it helped him to have very little light. And we, we then had some testing done, realized that fluorescent lighting was very disturbing to him, the way it processed through his brain. So we made a lot of modifications over the years, but I love when things like this come along. So this is an LED lamp that modulates the light coming into your brain differently so people with dyslexia, dyslexia can read. Now, it's only available in the in Europe right now, but I'll keep you posted as new developments come along. But I love those kind of ideas. Again, that's an idea unlike, I mean, like what many of you may have, an idea. How could you make things better? When we think, oh, well, gee, everything that needs to be invented has been invented. No, not a chance. I mean, there's so many, there's thousands of millions of opportunities for you to make, to take an idea and put legs on it, do something with it. I mean, simple things like um, a couple of friends of ours who, who put together Inya game, knowing the popularity of the Enneagram right now, they put together a game where you use cards based on the nine different kind of personality styles. Well, 
just there's lots of ideas out there. We're going to continue talking about this. Well, here's another just a good news thing. Man's cancer is healed after doing random acts of kindness for a year. Now, this guy's name is Bryce Royer. He lives up in Canada. He was diagnosed with a rare type of stomach cancer. Now, as near as I can figure out, he was about 25 years old when this happened. And I mean, it, it was it was bad. I mean, it was in he was in a wheelchair and knew that he was dying. So, well, he decided he was going to do something good. He decided if his life were filled with more loving and sharing, then maybe he could be healed in return. So he started a gift economy Facebook group. He had Cal. He put out a he put out a Craigslist note. Let me go down here. Put out a Craigslist ad offering unconditional love for zero dollars. It went viral. Was seen by millions of people in days. But Bryce started doing things just to help people. Just acts of kindness, giving people donations to help them pay their rent. He uh, put together. Gala, he put together twenty five thousand dollars to build a solar tiny home for a homeless single mom with hopes of starting a tiny village that would transition people toward jobs and permanent housing. Had a lot of people that kind of picked up his enthusiasm, obviously. He arranged for weekly deliveries of organic vegetables to the women's shelter where this lady had been living for more than a year with a little girl. Well, he kept doing all these good things, just not paying attention to his cancer because he knew he was dying, but he just kept doing these good things. Well, what happened is cancer went away. I mean, it really did. His doctor says a tumor shrunk is, and, and that his MRI results, get this, are, quote, unexplainable by Western science. Don't you love those things when it's unexplainable by Western science? No surgery, no chemo, no medication. There are videos up. You can go check it out, what this, what this kid has done. And now it's been a couple of years since that. He's gone on to regular life, got married, doing great. Cured his cancer by doing nice things. You know, it reminded me of a note I saw recently about Jimmy Carter, our former president. Back in 2015, I I checked on a couple of details, so I'd have a right to share with you here, but another similar story. In August of 2015, so now, you know, we're going on five years ago, he was 90 years old at the time. He said that he had just a few weeks to live. It was revealed that he'd been diagnosed with melanoma that spread to his brain. So, you know, what are you going to do with that? I mean, they gave him a few weeks to live. Cancer had spread to his brain. Well, that was five years ago. He has rebounded. Now, they're not saying the cancer is totally gone, but he says, you know, a year ago, this is back in... um, well, 2016, I said, I didn't think I was going to live at two or three weeks because they had already removed part of my liver because I had cancer there. After that, when they did an MRI, they found four cancer places in my brain. So I thought I had just a few weeks to live. Well, now he's 95. It's four years later. He's still showing up at Habitat for Humanity houses. Just a great example. It really makes you think. You know, if you, I mean, I went through a, a physical challenge just last year where I had a wake up call. I thought, my goodness, what's my body telling me? If I'm feeling so poorly, what are the reasons for that? 
Well, I've done some amazing things with my functional medicine doctor, feel surprisingly well, not only back to where I was, but better than that. But I'm such a believer in this. I love these stories about people turning around their physical challenges just by living a good life, doing good things, kindness. Incidentally, while I was looking at information for Jimmy Carter, he still lives in the house that he built himself back in 1961. So he and his wife still live there. It's valued currently by Zillow at $167,000. So our former president still lives in a house he built for himself. Now you can contrast, and he also buys his clothes at Dollar General, you know, eats bologna sandwiches and all that. Lives a pretty simple life. Grew up as a peanut farmer and kind of went back to that after the the glamour of being a president. In, in contrast, now again, he lives in that $167,000 house. In 2017, Former President Barack Obama purchased an $8.1 million mansion in Washington. Well, no criticism, no right or wrong, just pointing out their massive differences in what people think they need to live a good life. Here's a note that got my attention as an old farm kid. Farmers have become the unexpected heroes of the right to repair movement. I'll tell you what the right to repair movement is, but here's the deal. John Deere which I love. I have a John Deere tractor. The new trucks, tractors that John Deere makes, they're incredibly fancy, incredibly uh, expensive, and you can't fix them yourself. So what do you do if you're a farmer and you now have a tractor, but now you can't even fix it yourself anymore? Farmers are used to fixing things. My gosh, that's what we do. You know, a little bit of carpentry, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, whatever it is. You can fix it because you live in a farm. That's what you learn to do. Now you have a tractor that's so fancy that you have to have somebody come out with a computer, hook it up, and it's $150 an hour to figure out what's wrong. You know what that is prompting? That is prompting a resurgence of old tractors. Tractors that were built back in the 70s or 80s where it took a little bit of know-how and elbow grease to fix it and go on. I mean, I was the mechanic in our family. My dad was not really interested in mechanics, so I very quickly became the go-to guy. We had a little Alice Chalmers and then a Ford tractor and then John Deere's we had. But they were simple enough that I could work on them. Same way as cars. I mean, I cringe when I open a hood in a car now. You can't even see anything. It's all covered up. It requires computers to understand anything. I love old car shows. Joanna, I just went to an old antique car show down in Inglewood, Florida. We were down there and I love pop open the hood. It's very, very simple. You know, there's six wires going to spark plugs. It's got a distributor, rotor, alternator, generator, whatever, but very, very simple. Not so in today's cars. Well, these farmers are becoming the heroes of this right to repair movement. And that really is a terminology. The right, I'll tell you why it's popular. And this is Nuts, nuts. But Apple is refusing to make repair parts available for their phones, for their products. They're saying, no, you're going to screw something, but you have to bring it back in and have us repair it. So they're trying to keep from having people have access to parts to repair their own products. Now, yeah, we could go a lot of different ways with that. Politicians are getting involved, but this right to repair goes through all of our products. And farmers are saying, we want to be able to fix things ourselves so we can do it quickly, inexpensively, and go on. And so now, this is kind of cool. Tractors that were built 
30 and 40 years ago are bringing, golly, bringing 10 times the money they cost brand new because they're still less expensive than the new ones. And the farmers feel more in control of their own future by being able to fix them. Well, just some good news. Well, let me go in. Got a note from, from Tim who says, Dan, this is Tim, one of your earliest disciples. I've been following your work for about 25 years now. I came to you for a career assessment, but because of all the free information you share in your podcast and used to on your radio show from your workbooks and seminars, I was able to get pretty clear in the direction I should take by the time I sat down for the assessment with you. The meeting really just confirmed that I was on the right track, which built my confidence, and that was vital. In retrospect, the $400 I paid you for for it was insignificant compared to the more than $1 million I've earned in the last few years working at a job that fits me very well. I hope and trust that you feel some gratification in that. So thank you very much. Please thank Joanne as well for all the ways that she has supported me through supporting you and 48 Days. Happy New Year, Dan. Live long and prosper, my friend. Tim, well, Tim, thank you for your kind note. Golly, never get tired of hearing notes like that. And golly, if it's something that... uh, I mean, there, there's plenty of people who listen to the podcast, get our weekly newsletter, who I've never seen in person. They've never spent a penny with us, and they've gone on and done wonderful things. I'm thrilled about that. Now, a lot of those people are members currently of our 48 Days Eagles community, and uh, that's a good way to continue being plugged into this source of sharing ideas and resources where all the brilliant people in there can, can do that. Again, that's, of course, you can just go to 48dayseagles.com. Check it out. We'd love to see you in there. That's where all the real action is taking place at this point in the 48 Days community. Well, this is a question I got from Brad in California who says, Dan, I hear you share about all your good ideas. Do you ever have a bad idea? Well, <laughs> I, I had to pick myself up off of the floor from laughing so hard. Uh, do you ever have a bad idea? Uh, yeah, probably about 10 times a day. And you know why? I don't know of any way to get to the good ideas without going through a whole lot of bad ones. If you're waiting to share or experiment with an idea until you have the perfect idea, chances are strong that 10 years from now, you'll still be waiting. You know, golly, who is it? Reed Hastings, I think it is, who says, if you are not embarrassed by the first version of your product, idea, whatever, if you're not embarrassed by it, you waited too long. When I look back on my initial ideas, I have some of the the original 48 Days workbooks that I put out back when Dave Ramsey and I were just getting started with our little business ideas that we had, he and finance design careers. When I look at those, oh my gosh. I mean, I went to, to I, I'd go to Kinko's and run those off, hard stock cover, just a Times New Roman print on the front, nothing artistic at all, spiral bound, that was it just a loose compilation of the things that I was teaching. That was it. Then I went to a friend's house on a Saturday afternoon. He was a music guy, still is great guy, good friend, but he was a music guy. We hung blankets on either side of me in a hallway in his house to deaden the sound of his kids playing. And I recorded what we turned into a cassette tape to go with that three ring binder. That was how I first started selling 
48 days to the work you love went on and we sold, you know, several million dollars worth of that little product before it ever became a real book. Well, those bad ideas, you want to treasure those. I mean, most people are afraid of good or uh, bad ideas. Good ideas require change and that's intimidating. Bad ideas I know can make us look foolish or stupid or waste time and money, but take a look around you. I mean, anyone who is doing something great had a lot of bad ideas to get to where they are today. I don't know of a single exception to that. I don't know of anybody who got one right idea and went on to success. The only people I know who are doing extremely well today went through a whole lot of bad ideas to get there. So have I had bad ideas? Yeah, you better believe it. I mean, I've failed with writing ideas, seminar ideas, product ideas, employee ideas. I mean, maybe I should track them for a while. I suspect my ratio, I don't know, maybe, maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 bad ideas for every one that has real potential. I mean, my advice is welcome your bad ideas. They're your friends. Treat them with the love and the respect that they deserve. Well, there's a quotation that says, nothing is more dangerous than an idea when it's the only one you have. And in working with coaching clients, I mean, they often come in with an idea. Gee, I want to do this. I'd like to open a restaurant. I say, great, let's come up with 19 other ideas. So we have some balance to this. And we, and we often then in that process, even if it feels strenuous to do it, come up with an idea that far surpasses the initial one that they had. You know, it, just thinking about this, Recently, we were at a, a farmer's market again down in Florida, and there was a guy there selling maple syrup. You know, and I thought, oh my gosh, that stuff ought to be a hundred dollars, a little tiny jar, because I know what's involved in getting that. I mean, I really respect what's involved in getting that. When I was about, here's one of my bad ideas when I was about probably 12 years old, we lived on a farm. And of course, being an entrepreneur, a little kid, I was always looking for ideas, selling Christmas cards door to door, cleaning up the neighbor's cars or whatever. And we had a woods. Well, in the woods, we had a lot of maple trees. I thought, whoa, I can tap those trees, get the maple syrup, and I'm going to get rich selling maple syrup. I tapped the trees cut little pieces of pipe to put in, created my own little taps and put them in there and hung buckets, had probably five trees or so. And I watched the sap start to collect. I thought, oh my gosh, this is too good to be true. Well, what I did not realize is that it takes a whole lot of tree sap to when boiled down makes a quantity of maple syrup. You know what it takes? Now, I didn't realize this. We didn't have, golly, we didn't have Google and the internet back then. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about it. But I know now it takes 40 gallons of sap to produce one gallon of syrup. 40. 40 to 1 is the ratio. So when I see maple syrup today, I really appreciate it. But it reminds me of that time when I was a 12-year-old kid. My mom was really patient with me. She helped me. She helped me boil it down. We didn't have any sophisticated equipment. We were just going to boil it down enough until it was syrup. There was nothing sophisticated about the process. You can do that. You can do that today. Just take raw sap from the tree, but you got to boil it down. It's going to be 40 to 1. So you need, if you have a gallon of, of sap, which seems like a lot, you're going to end up with a teacup 
full of syrup. Well, not even that much. You're going to end up with a couple of tablespoons of, of syrup. Well, so that's an idea. Yeah, that was an idea I was really excited about when I was probably about 12 years old. Here's another one. I was probably about 30 years old when I did this and being here at Christmas time reminds me of it. But I had with a friend, a car lot in Anaheim, California. I was about 30 years old at the time. So I had my master's degree in clinical psychology and much of the chagrin of Joanne and family members. I decided I didn't want to be a psychotherapist. It was boring and too slow moving. I was going to do other things, got involved with a friend of mine in a car business. We had an absolute blast. I loved it, still do. But we had a lot on Catella Avenue in Anaheim, California. Well, a slow time for car sales is it between Thanksgiving and Christmas. People aren't making that kind of a major purchase. They're interested in parties and activities and getting gifts for friends that don't involve cars. So that tends to be a really slow period of time. So I said, wow, we've got a we've got frontage right here on a main street in Anaheim, California. It's a paved lot. Why don't we move what cars we have to the back of the lot and we'll have Christmas trees. And I researched it a little bit, found that we could buy trees for you know $5 and sell them for $25. I thought, wow, those are pretty good margins. Let's do that. So I contracted for a truckload of trees in June. So we had to contract way in advance. So sure enough, you know, come Thanksgiving, here's the trees. They unloaded them because it's hot and dry in Southern California. We put down about six inches of sawdust. So we had to have that hauled in, paid for that, spread that, and then kept it wet. So it kept a nice, moist, cool bottom foundation for the trees. Then we started cutting and putting them in the stands. We had music playing. Our wives made you know hot cider and marshmallows for people coming in. We had it all set up, having a blast. And we did, in fact, start selling trees. We sold a lot of trees. Well, guess what else happened? We missed every party. We missed all the activities we missed all the family time with it. You got to be kidding me. It got close to Christmas and I saw what we were doing. I also realized we were having a lot of trees stolen. I mean, we, we didn't have any fenced in area. It was right on the main street and we weren't there all night long. We didn't have security guards there. We just trusted people as I did then and still do today, to be honest, been found out that not everybody is. So we knew we were missing a lot of trees. We finally got close to Christmas. I said, man, let's, we need to, in this thing. We need to get out of here. So I, I put up a sign. I said, Hey, help yourself for the trees. We had, a, I said, take whatever you want. And we just left it, left it on its own. When it's all said and done, my partner and I, after we cleared out expenses, we realized we had each made about 1500 bucks, 1500 bucks. I mean, we could have sold one car in that period of time and done better than that. Well, we laugh about it, laugh about it still today, but it's just one of those bad ideas that I had that uh, helped me learn how to find the good ideas. You know, I've got ideas today. I mean, I've got ideas that I'm working on right now. I've got one. I'll tell you about an idea I'm working on. I don't know how it's going to work at all. But every Sunday morning, I get up and I write what I call Sabbath musings. It's just a short philosophical piece. It's not directly related to just careers. It's more about spiritual and philosophical wellness, challenging our current beliefs and that kind of thing. I sent it out only to members of my mastermind. Well, the one that I wrote this last Sunday was number 141. 
Now, they're usually about 700 words in length, so you can do the math on that. That's really the content of two or three books. But I don't, and I'm, I'm ready to share those with a broader audience. I hadn't intended on doing that initially, but I'm getting so much push to do that from people who do know me well and have been able to read those. So I want to do that. Now, that's not just another traditional book. It's random thoughts about all kinds of things. I'm not even sure where it would go in a bookstore, how it would be categorized on Amazon, but I want to do it. I want to do it also in a way that is not just another paperback book. I want to do it, and I got some examples, and I'm working with a printer in terms of how I can get this done. I want it to be done with soft imitation leather, so it's a real soft, real comfy feeling, almost like a meditation book of some kind with gold edge pages and a bookmark in there. Well, that's very, very expensive to do unless you do major quantities. So I've got this challenge. I've, I've got to do it myself. I mean, this is not the kind of thing that a publisher, I've got publishers who, who would do this, but it's, it's really not in their suites. It's not what they normally do. I'm going to do it myself. The only way to get the cost reasonable is to produce a pretty large quantity of books, which I'm hesitant to do because I don't even know how people will receive this. I mean, people who know me as a career guy, you know, do they care about these other things that I'm writing? So it's an idea. I I am going to put some time and money into it, but I really don't have a great degree of confidence that it's going to be a big success. It may prove to be a bad idea. Really just not sure. Well, with that, let me break the thinking for a second here. Just to remind you, yeah, these are real life questions that I'm addressing here. Got some more to go here, but just a break to let you know, if you got a question you want to share, be delighted to put it in the lineup for an upcoming show. Just shoot it into askdan at 48days.com. Or if you got a success story that you want to share or, or share about a good idea that you brought to life. I mean, these ideas, I mean, I just continue to be amazed and uh, excited about the great ideas that people do bring to the table, the way they do something, take action on it, bring it to life. Eric says he thinks he's got an industry black ball. Uh, My story goes as follows. I started working for a property management company that my dad uh, was a part owner of in high school at age 16. After 12 years with the company, working my way up to a leadership position, the owners sold the company with the aspirations of a continued success and promotion. Within 12 months, the new owners were hiring their friends and family and were attempting to demote me to customer service with a pay cut of $25,000. I made the obvious choice to leave and go to a competing company. I joined my new company, June 1st, 2019, and loved my job. I went home on September 19th, very excited and motivated with what I was doing. When I arrived to work on September 20th, 2019, with breakfast for the whole office, all my stuff was packed into a box, and I was terminated immediately with the explanation of, we feel you're not the right fit. Since that time, I've done a lot of soul searching and research, including reading the 48 days to the work you love. However, despite having hundreds of contacts in the industry, I'm being blackballed for some reason. 
I've now enrolled in online classes to pursue an entirely different career, but I'm still struggling with finding a place to earn an income to support my family due to a lack of experience in any other field. Any advice on how to get around the preconceived notion that someone must have three to five years experience for an entry-level job that would be greatly appreciated? Well, yeah, Eric, I appreciate your question, your openness about what's going on. I talk to people every day who are getting positions where they don't have the degrees or the experience required for the job every day. We've talked on here about about Josh, about Joshua, who was the kid who was a blacksmith, trained himself online using free tutorials to be a software developer, got a six-figure position right out of the gate in a position that required a four-year degree and seven years of experience. And obviously he had neither of those. But we, we hear stories like that all the time. So don't think that that is a really, that's a screening tool for companies to say you need three to five years experience. If they like you and you really can prove your competence, you're in. That's not a hard and fast rule at all. Now, the other thing is, and I want to kind of gently challenge you here. You're saying that you have been industry blackballed. I doubt that very much. Now, in property management, there's hundreds of companies out there. They're not all talking to each other every day. They're not going to say, hey, do you know that guy, Eric, you know, don't hire. No, that's not going to happen. Even if somebody contacts one of your previous employers, they're not going to give bad information about you. That would be ludicrous. They would put themselves in a liability risk for doing that. They're not doing that. You have to just be honest and accept responsibility. What is it about you that is making these companies not want to bring you on board. Now, when we look at how somebody gets a position, there's really just three steps. You do your resume, you get an interview, you get a job offer. So if you're not getting a job offer, we can back up and say, where is the breakdown? If you put your resume out there 50 times and never got an interview, let's look at your resume. What is it? Why are people not even having their appetites wetted? by looking at your resume, we can address that. So you can go back and make sure that your resume presents you in a desirable way. So if you send that resume out 50 times and you get 15 interviews, wow, that's great. We know your resume is working. We don't need to do anything there. If you get 15 interviews and you don't get a job offer, wow, it's not because an industry blackball it's what is it? Why don't people want you on their team? So what I'd encourage you to do, Eric, get someone close to you to do a practice interview. I mean, video the interview. Then ask yourself, you know, would you be excited about having you and your team? There, there are steps. There's something about the way you're presenting. This does not require an industry change. I'm absolutely confident of that. If you want to be in property management, there are tons of opportunities there and good ones, especially based on your past experience. You're not being blackballed by an industry. There's something that's happening in the interview selection process that's not working in your favor. And you can address that. I mean, that, that's a positive thing. Knowing that is going to save you a whole lot of time in trying to go back and get geared up in a new career. I don't think you have to do that. Well, 
Let me grab another question here. Mary says, with all the options available for building my brand, how do I keep up with all the social media choices? Okay, that's a version of a question that we get probably three or four times a day, especially now in the Eagles community. And I I need to address it in there because when when you look at all the things that are out there, and, and of course, people ask me, you know, gee, you know, what am I doing to stay, uh, you know, to, to continue, you know, building, selling books, courses, seminars, events, bringing in new members to 48 Days Eagle. You know, how do I continue doing that? Well, here's the deal. You may notice, perhaps you don't, but I don't do Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Snapchat. Let's see what else is the new TikTok. I don't do any of those. I just do this podcast and a weekly newsletter and engagement in our online 48 Days Eagles community. But in those, I am extremely consistent. A lot of you listen to the podcast, realize, you know, I've been doing this a very long time. When I said I was going to do it once a week, I have been doing it once a week. I've never missed a week, never done a replay. Consistency builds trust. The newsletter that goes out every Friday, now I I must admit, I don't even do that. I have an assistant, Sheila, who does that. She scans back through content. I mean, I have hundreds and hundreds of articles that I've read. She scans through content, pulls that together, takes the notes from the podcast, has a humor piece. We've got a lot of things she can draw from there and what's happening in the 48 days community. Who's doing what, who's coming up with new ideas. She puts that together. She does a beautiful job. I don't do that. The only thing I really do is this podcast and then the engagement in our online community. Now, let me, let me just qualify that a little bit because I'm sure some of you are saying, well, gee, I've seen you on YouTube and Facebook. Yeah. Sheila, again, Sheila and Ashley do take components of what we do, what I do, and repurpose it in those places. But I do nothing on any of those social media venues. Now, now here's the thing. I've got a little perspective because I, I was started doing what I'm doing before we had any of those things, before we had Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and all those. So I know it doesn't require that, but that's not why I don't use them. I just see them as things that have potential to suck my time in ways that I really don't want to do. But here's what I encourage you to do. Do what you enjoy. That's why I do a podcast. It's not because I think I have to do it, you know, as an author to build a brand. No, it's because I enjoy it so much. I enjoy this kind of engagement. I enjoy unpacking the questions that come in. So I encourage you, do what you enjoy. Don't try to talk yourself into the misery of using something just because you think it's necessary. Now, unfortunately, I know a whole lot of people who do newsletters, they write blogs, they do a podcast. It's like pulling teeth because they hate every minute of it. And I'm like, why would you do that? Well, I thought I had to do that. No, you don't. There's none of that you have to do. I mean, some of the people who I admire most, take somebody, take somebody like Thomas Merton. Now, Thomas Merton was a monk. So obviously he wasn't on social media. He lived at the Abbey of Gethsemane, but he was a writer. He was a thought leader. He was respected all over the world, built a massive audience, not by using social media, but by 
doing something significant. And that really is a point here. You know, I look at somebody today like Seth Godin, again, a brilliant, brilliant marketer. Is Seth just burning it up with Twitter, Facebook? No, not at all. Seth says when your ideas are worth spreading, when your work is remarkable, then people are going to talk about you. They're going to, he focuses on do something remarkable, do something worth talking about, and people will spread that for you. I have close access to just a few people. That's where my time is spent. So it's not how can I get 5,000 more Facebook likes. I don't, I don't track those numbers. Frankly, I don't even track the numbers of like the podcast. I just do what I do and it seems to be working pretty well. And I just continue doing that. But be careful about thinking that you have to use the tools because those are just tools. Don't get so wrapped up in using tools that you forget what your real idea is. Focus on your idea and do that really well. I mean, the Mona Lisa has a huge social media presence. Well, obviously, you know, she's not doing tweeting, all that. But it's because it's something that is such an iconic art piece. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about that. It reminds me of um, what Steve Martin, the great comedian, says, be so good they can't ignore you. Focus on being good. Focus on doing something. I want to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to wrap up with this. I'm going to wrap up with a tip here that can really make your year. It can make your year to 2020 and it can make your success in a way that I don't know of anything else that can do. Let me use Warren Buffett as an example. Warren Buffett doesn't spend much time on social media. He dedicates a significant part of his time to reading, which he considers his real key to success. Now, he's worth currently about $81 billion, but he says reading is the key to success. When, when he was asked one time what was the key to success, he reached toward a pile of manuals in his office said, read 500 pages like this every day. That's how knowledge works. It builds up like compound interest. All of you can do it, but I guarantee not many of you will do it. That's a quote from Warren Buffett. He spends five to six hours a day pouring over different newspapers. He also reads about 500 pages of financial documents daily. And he credits his great business decisions to his reading habit. I read and think. He takes the time to get the facts, then he sits and thinks critically. By analyzing new information thoroughly, he makes fewer impulse decisions than most people in the business. He's highly selective about what he reads, choosing to be educated over being entertained. He considers that similar reading habits can improve anyone's intelligence and success. Now, I read a lot. Joanna was joking with me the other day. She said, I thought you weren't going to buy any more books because I, I, in 2019, I quit keeping track of all the books that I was reading so that I wouldn't get caught up in this phenomenon. Well, I need to read another book so I can put it on my list. So I have bragging rights about how many books are. I stopped that totally. It's the first year in 20 years that I have not kept track but I still read a lot because I do enjoy it. And yes, I still do order books a lot. I just got a book, uh, The Road Less Stupid, which was recommended by one of my mentors. So I'm going to read that. But I read a lot. 
but my success, there's nothing that has opened the door to success to me as much as reading. Nothing. I was a poor farm kid. We didn't have radio or TV. Guess what? Poor little Dan Miller. Well, poor little Dan Miller didn't have radio or TV. So he was driven to books. Books opened the doors. I'm grateful that I didn't have radio or TV back then because books opened the world of opportunity like nothing else then and continue to do so today. Mark Cuban reads more than three hours every day. Bill Gates reads at least one book a week. Elon Musk credits his success to his voracious reading habit. I could go on and on and on. Well, let me just kind of recap there. We're just going to wrap it up there because those are, those are enough point takeaway points that you can, um, how you can make this the most amazing year ever. You know, a lot of you are choosing words that you want to have as kind of your focus for the year, but I want you to build these principles into your life and it can open the door to success and put you at the top of the game without having to jump through hoops without having to try to be something that you think others want you to be or having to use tools that you don't enjoy doing. Nope. Here's, so here's our takeaways. Here's the wrap up. Number one, let me give you just three that we kind of touched on today. Practice kindness as a way to cure your physical illnesses. Number two, welcome your bad ideas. That's how you get to the good ones. Number three, read rather than spend time on social media. And again, our quotation for today from John Maxwell, ideas have a short shelf life. You must act on them before the expiration date. And our resource, of course, was that. Go to 48days.com slash why. You get my resource there. Why are you here? Who are you? Why are you here? Where are your greatest opportunities going to be? You can open the door to that. Get that free resource. Just go there. Check it out. Hey, I'm delighted to get started in this new year with all of you here at The Ideas. I got a lot of travel set up the next few weeks here. Going to connect with some wonderful people. I'll share with you some of the highlights of that. Um, But uh, I'll continue to share your ideas, your successes, your wins here as well. Your questions, we welcome those. Shoot them into askdan at 48days.com. And again, as you know, I totally believe and know you believe it as well. You wouldn't be listening at this point that together we can, in fact, find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. You don't have to settle for less. The opportunities are right there for you. Find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable.